You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Wednesday. Hello, Canada. How's it going? Coast to coast to coast. Spring's coming. We got a great show for you lined up. The war room is standing by as Ontario goes to the polls. So we've got elections and abortion. We've got the president of the first airport for flying cars and drones. Yeah, we do. Maybe you'll have a flying car to get out of traffic. That'd be good. And so we're going to deal with that. We I can't wait for that, actually. Like, how even realistic is that? I don't know. But I begin with an exclusive new poll that we can literally break right now from our friend Nick Nanos. This is an exclusive poll on Ontario because Ontario is going to the polls today and Doug Ford and Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca and the Green Party, they have one seat. Uh, they, everyone's out there pitching. Fine, great. June 2nd is the big date and, and we're going to cover it closely in all our stations in Ontario. Now, I know that we, we are on... Uh, across this beautiful country in Quebec and British Columbia. But I'm intrigued if you're listening on those stations as well, if these issues resonate with you, because we've got exclusive new polling on what Ontario's election, the big issues are. And I wonder in Quebec and and BC, if they had an election, if these are the same issues, I'm just intrigued because I told you yesterday that according to some data I'd seen, affordability, cost of living was the big ticket. Cost of living, cost of living, dwarfs everything. And this new polling exclusively done for Nick Nanos for CP24 and CTV News. So it's CTV News, CP24, and Nanos Research. This provincial polling uh, in Ontario released May 4th right now, just under embargo until literally a minute ago. Get this. Now, now I'm going to not reveal what the most, I'm not going to say, oh, this is what people care about, because I'm intrigued what you think. This kind of stunned me, okay? I'm going to dig right down. Guns. Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, was on this program. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make all handguns illegal. This is going to put me on the map. Yeah, it, it got a lot of immediate attention. Do do people care about the gun law issue? According to the Nanos research in Ontario, 1%. Like, it almost didn't register. In the GTA, Greater Toronto Area, really important area, 1.3%. Like, this issue does not track. Doesn't. What about untrustworthy government? I don't like Doug Ford. Time to change. Barely registers. 4% 4% in the province, 4% in the GTA, rest of Ontario, 4%. Flat. Not a big issue. You, th- I thought fuel price, like, I'm just telling you, I thought gas prices, this is going to be massive, barely registers. 1.9% overall. In the GTA, 1.2%, 0.5% in the rest of Ontario. So gas prices, not huge. Wow. What about senior long-term care? Remember, after all the tragedy in the long-term care, will Doug Ford be punished for that? 
That's been a huge issue. 1.9%. These are, what is the most important provincial issue? 1.9% of people in the province. Like, it doesn't register as a significant issue. What about child care? Uh, Doug Ford signed the big child care deal with the uh, federal government. 0.5%. In the GTA, zero. Rest of Ontario, 1.1. Zero. Like, what? Taxes, 1.9%. So what really? So now you're thinking to yourself, like, I'm looking at this. What really tracks? Well, here, I'm going to go the top seven. The deficit, 4.7. The rest of Ontario, so in rural places, that's 8.6. In in the GTA, barely registers 1.7. Rest of Ontario, 8.2. So there's a rural-urban divide, and there's a male-female divide on on deficits. 6.6% of males say this is a big issue, barely 3% of females. Much bigger issue for the 55 plus. If you're 18 to 34, deficit doesn't register, 0.8. If you're 55 plus, 6.6. Big, big news. Like, so deficit, 5% overall. Education, next, 4.7 overall. Not a big deal. Not a drive. I mean, big deal, but not a driver. The environment is next, 8%. 8.4% in the, in, the, uh, in the province. In the GTA, it's big issue, 8.7. In the rest of Ontario, 8.1. So you're starting to get consequential stuff there. But now the big four. Economy and jobs, 10%. Economy and jobs, 10%. Kind of flat across, slightly more for males, 12%, 7.4 for females, according to Nick Nanos. And interestingly... Um, kind of uh, the age brackets kind of similar. Then housing, the housing affordability issue, housing in Toronto, actually sales fell like 27% recently today. That's only 11%. I thought that'd be way higher in the GTA. It's 13% rest of Ontario, 8.7. I thought it'd be one of the big ones. And then cost of living and inflation only slightly higher at 12% cost of living. In the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, 14%. Rest of Ontario, 9.5%. But, now that's interesting. But if you added up the economy and jobs, housing, and cost of living and inflation, okay, then you get 33%. That's, if you aggregate all three, if they're connected, they kind of are. But all of that, and here it is, and I don't, Chris, I don't know if we have a drum roll. According to Nanos's exclusive new poll done for CP24 and elections Ontario and, and CTV for the election in Ontario that was released like 12 minutes ago, healthcare is the dominant issue. Healthcare. I know it always is, but I thought cost of living, inflation, housing, the economy, I thought I would dwarf it 27%. Healthcare, health. Now, is this because we've just been through a pandemic? The fact that we had to shut down our whole economy because our healthcare system was so bad, like so fragile? Is it because people had delayed surgeries? But in Ontario, 26.6% of people say this is my number one issue. My most important provincial issue of concern, according to the Nano CTV 
new CP24 poll, 26%, 27% basically say healthcare. In the GTA, 27.2, rest of Ontario, 26. Like it is across the board. For female voters, 30%. For male voters, 23%. For 55 plus, the big voting, 36%. But even for 18 to 34, 21%. Healthcare is driving the Ontario election. If you're in Quebec and you are in British Columbia, are, are you surprised? Healthcare is by far the biggest issue. It more than double, if you put cost of living, inflation, and housing together, it doesn't hit healthcare. I got to tell you, my brain flipped a bit on that. I'm surprised. So how will the election play out? Let's see what happens here. It's not about guns. It's not about, oh yeah, and and Nick even asked about freedom. You know, this whole freedom, 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 2%. Of people said it was their most important. Like, it barely tracks. Okay? Healthcare. And then the, the big three. Cost of living, inflation, housing, and the economy. That That's it. That's your big four. Nonetheless, there's a culture war burning up in the United States over the draft opinion to repeal abortion and whatever. Even though it's not on this list. It's not like, this is my top of mind issue. Politically, it's burning up. Are abortion rights in Canada threatened? I speak to the minister in charge of this next to find out what they're actually doing about it. So stay with us. As this story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Abortion debate is back in the United States, and that means it's back here. After Politico got the leaked draft opinion, unprecedented, wild, from the Supreme Court, that they, in June, will likely strike down Roe v. Wade. By the way, not a big surprise. Other decisions leading up, we thought this was going to happen, but wow, still a bombshell. And... That will make immediately abortion in at least 50% of the U.S. illegal right away. They've got these trigger laws that trigger bans. As soon as the the Supreme Court overturns it, they're going to ban it in 13 states and 13 others basically have already done that. So what about Canada? Well, look, just remember in 1988, the Canadian Supreme Court struck down a federal law that criminalized abortion as unconstitutional. That's what our law stands. So access to abortion varies from province to province. Um, BC had 23 service providers in urban centers, only one in rural in 2019. Um, so what, what impact could this have? The liberals said that they were going to make sure they're standardized access. That's what they promised in the last election, but they've made to abortion. They've made no progress on that. So I asked the minister of families, children, and social development, Karina Gould, will your government actually bring in legislation that will enshrine equal access to safe and legal abortion in Canada. Well, Evan, as you know, in Canada in 1988, the Morgenthaler decision at the Supreme Court uh, made it a constitutional right, a charter right of women not to be denied to be denied access to abortion. And so what our government is doing is working through the Canada Health Act to ensure that all provinces and territories provide safe, legal access to abortion. Yeah, there 
in 2021, your government promised to expand access to abortion services by establishing former regulations under the Canada Health Act. What's the progress on that, though? Yeah, they're, I mean, they're being developed. As you know, regulations take a bit of time to go through, but Minister Duclos is working through that. As you'll also know, uh, we did enforce the Canada Health Act with New Brunswick uh, that uh, had limited some access, particularly at Clinic 554. Um, and so we did enforce that um, with New Brunswick and we'll continue to do that because, you know, there are issues around the country. Um, unfortunately, you know, the news out of the United States uh, late last night is not something that we're immune to here in Canada. There are many forces in frankly, in the Conservative Party of Canada, that are looking to limit a woman's right to access uh, reproductive and sexual health services. I, I want to get to that because, you know, you've got also so-called pro-life members in the Liberal Party as well. But access to abortion is a patchwork across Canada. Will your government institute a federal standard of access? So we're working on that. Uh, last budget, we announced 45, a $45 million fund to work with community organizations to support access to reproductive and sexual health services to particularly vulnerable groups. But we know that, you know, if you live in a remote or a rural community, it can be really challenging to access those services. And so absolutely more needs to be done. And we will do that through the Canada Health Act. Okay. Okay. Any, any idea when that will happen? Because, you know, as you know, New Brunswick's got, I think, what, three places only now to access safe legal abortions? Yeah, no, I mean, that work is very much underway. I mean, you'll appreciate the last election happened about six months ago. And unfortunately, for the past two years, we've been dealing with the COVID crisis when it comes to uh, the public health emergency that we've been having. But I know that Health Canada is working on this, and I know that this is a top priority for Minister Duclos. If Roe v. Wade is overturned in the U.S., and it's still a draft opinion, would Canada consider allowing Americans to access safe legal abortions here in Canada? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, I think we need to see what happens with this. Certainly, it's very alarming what um, was announced last night or what was leaked last night. I think it's very alarming not just for women um, in the United States, but quite frankly, women around the world um, as you know their rights are being threatened. Um, I think that Canada has been uh, a leader when it comes to access to sexual health and reproductive rights internationally. When I was Minister of International Development, we were one of the top funders of sexual health and reproductive rights. And so we'll be right. watching this situation very closely. Okay. Um, another promise was that your government would axe or get away, take away charity status for anti-abortion organizations. Is that on the table? Uh, you know, we are looking at everything right now. I mean, I think what's really important and, you know, as we've seen over the past couple of years is that if you are trying to get government funding to take away somebody's charter rights, that's really questionable. Right. If you are trying to take away somebody's charter rights, um, you know, we have concerns about that. So all of these things are being looked at and being discussed right now. Um, and one of the things that I would say is really concerning is that, you know, when you look at the Conservative Party of Canada, two thirds of their members are anti-abortion. 54 of them have been given the green light by the Campaign Life Coalition as those that have said that they would limit women's access to sexual health and reproductive services. So, you know, we need to be very vigilant here in Canada and recognize that access to abortion is health care. Health care is a human right, and we need to stand up and protect well, that. Well, 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 even in the Liberal Party, I mean, this crosses party lines. You've got uh, leadership candidate Leslie Lewis, who, who I interviewed recently, 
um, said, you know, she wants to expand access to, you know, child services, but she's against uh, sex-selective abortions and, and you know inter what, Evan, international aid for women's false, reproductive health. Is, is that what you're talking from, about? Yeah, it's such a false flag from the, uh, the anti-choice um, group and the anti-abortion group because 90% of abortions in Canada happen in the first 12 weeks. In the first 12 weeks, you don't know what the gender is. So they try to frame it in feminist language, in language that's around gender equality, but it's really just a backdoor way to limit, um, you know, the, the rights that women have fought for for decades, the progress that we've made to try and, and overturn that. And I think that's really concerning. And I don't think you can just couch it in language um, that you think might be um, you know, acceptable. But how to, late? So, but I mean, but some some would say, you know, they're saying, well, we don't want sex selective. Are you against sex selective abortion? I mean, those. I talked to her. She said, why is that so controversial? We want to ban sex selection abortion. But again, it's it's a false flag because 90 percent of abortions that happen in Canada happen within the first 12 weeks. In the first 12 weeks, you do not know the sex of um, the fetus, and so. It's a backdoor argument to try and limit right. access to abortion, but it's not one that's based in facts. I would invite viewers to go to Action Canada's website to look at the myths, to look and understand right. uh, the reality of you know, access to abortion in Canada to get the facts, because that's really important in this conversation that we're basing it on so, facts. Uh, we know that um, there have been reports, there was a a study published in something called Contraception that 12 abortion facilities across Canada reported over 570 instances of picketing and harassment. Um, now, your government passed a, a bill um, that would basically say you can't really obstruct access to health facilities or intimidate people. Does that apply to abortion clinics? Well, it applies to health facilities, right? And abortion clinics are health facilities. You know, this is, again, a really important issue, and I'm glad you raised it, because today, you know, in Toronto, there were people who were harassing people who were trying to access reproductive and sexual health services. Um, and this is something that's really important, and I think, you know, important for Canadians to understand across the country. In uh, the previous Liberal Ontario government had passed legislation to provide a buffer zone around abortion clinics so that people could access those services safely. The current Conservative government, led by Doug Ford, rescinded that legislation. So anyone who's walking into a clinic that provides those reproductive and health services can be and is often targeted and intimidated with harassment. That's unacceptable. That should not happen in Canada. But as I said, there are many forces at play within particularly conservative parties, both at the provincial and federal level, that are making it harder to access these services and intimidating people who are seeking these services out. That is their charter right in Canada. That is Minister Karina Gould. So, so look, this is starting to play out here. It will play out in the conservative leadership race. We'll talk about that in a minute. But... Given the fact that it's an election day in a province, why don't we ask this? On this day, the, the, the NDP federally are proposing changing the voting age to allow 16 and 17-year-olds to vote. Let's do a call on that. You know where I stand. I've always thought 16-year-olds should vote. 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. 1-855-633-1010. Should 16 and 17-year-olds be able to vote?
Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. It is election day in Ontario. And on this very day, the new Democrats are proposing to change the voting age to 16. So 16 and 17 year olds can vote. And I've asked you to weigh in 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Now here's what Jugmeet Singh says. Here's why he said he wants to do this. We believe it'll be uh, a step to strengthen democracy and democracy to encourage more participation. And we've seen great evidence that that's what happens. Uh, young people uh, at the age of 16 participate in society. They work, they pay their taxes, they are able to drive, they're able to get married, and they should be able to vote. And he says, look, there's one key reason, climate, but here's the other one, housing. Secondly, the housing crisis, which is one of the biggest crises that as a society we're up against, that is also going to disproportionately impact young people. The NDP says, look, by 16 young Canadians, a lot of them are working, they're paying taxes on their income, they're driving, uh, you know, they're, they're starting to join cadets like the military. They have no voice in parliament, though. 13 other countries have said, yeah, we'll do it. 13 other countries. And by the way, some young people across the country have already launched a challenge, a court challenge to say that the Canada Elections Act's that limits them from voting violates their charter. And, and, and there's lots of evidence to show that when you lower the voting age, participation goes up. So what's your take on this? Let's go. Let's, I have so many, this is, I, I'm all for it. I don't know why this is a big issue. Yes, Evan, 16 and 17 year olds should be allowed to vote. My 16 year old is talking about the election. They know more than we give them credit for. They may make more inf- inf- um, informed choices than you. Probably. Absolutely not, Evan. Voting should be left up to adults. I'm 32. Looking back when I was 16, I was an idiot. I knew nothing about the world, economics, or social issues. I think the voting age should be increased to 25. Wow. Evan. Be serious. 16 and 17-year-olds should not, I repeat, should not be allowed to vote. They don't pay taxes. They don't understand barely how to tie their own shoes. Never mind have an impact on our future direction. We have all seen the lack of maturity, even from 20-year-olds, and really to open the door to future affect our politics is is a disaster. Yeah, I, I, I don't see it that way. I think their lives are affected. I think... The voting, most people vote when they're in their late 40s and 50s, and so they get more attention, and young people issues don't. Um, Dan, go ahead. Yeah, I just changed my mind at the last second as a conservative. My answer, yes, under two conditions, like you just stated. They take a political science course. Are there any branch of the part-time militia, Army cadets, sea cadets, air cadets, or any part of the Army reserves? and they're participating, then they should be allowed to vote. If they don't have any of that, then they have to wait until they're 18. Is that fair enough? That's interesting. Um, I don't know if I would divide the right to vote based on your... um, I I know what you're saying. I wouldn't do it. I I wouldn't say, you know, you have to do certain things to get the franchise. I think the right to vote is an inherent right. The left-wing politicians just love the young and gullible. But, but like, why? why I, I'm, I'm just asking, because why is it a left-right issue? I'm just trying to figure that out. Why would it be a left or right issue? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't a right, a conservative, have the same appeal as a liberal? Like, I'm just trying to figure, why would that be a, a, a partisan issue? Because they promise some things that the taxpayer has to pay for. Free this, free that, nothing's free. 
we all got to work and pay into it. Right, that's a fair point, Dan. Uh, thank you. I, I I don't know what changes by eighteen. If like at eighteen you're you sober up on that, and at seventeen you're like I can't I I can't do it by seventeen, but you know in six months I can. But okay, uh, John's with you though, Dan. John John and Thornhill, what's up? Yeah, uh, uh, Evan, you're a good guy. You're a good journalist. So I want to preface with that, but I can tell that you have never ever voted for a conservative in your life, at least not recently, because no conservative leaning even leaning person would ever come up with such a cockamamie proposal. If in, in a, as I said to your producer, in a perfect world, which we don't live in, and it's not politically viable, but yeah, in a perfect world, you wouldn't be able to vote till you were around 25, because a lot of mainstream signs, we're not talking about fringe signs, we're talking about mainstream, uh, you know, by all the uh, sort of top medical uh, journals in the world, show that the frontal cortex of your brain, which is the rational part of your brain, is not really developed till, uh, for most people till around 25. Young people are, can be very bright in terms of learning new subjects. In fact, they're brighter than older people in terms of learning new subjects quickly. But they're morons, including myself. I'm not excluding myself from that uh, uh, situation when they're that age. They barely pay any taxes. It's, it would basically be a uh, left-wing vote, <laughs> vote, which is why you'll never see yeah. a conservative party, not Republicans, not conservatives in Canada, not conservatives in the Netherlands, not conservatives in Israel will we'll never support right. such a thing because. But they, but conservatives supported in Brazil, in the United Kingdom, and in Australia. I'm, I, I mean, I'm just the facts are, the facts are, the facts are like they've lo- they've lowered it, right? Uh, municipal well, and provincial, right? Like they, like I'm just saying, I, I get what you're saying. Believe me, um, that yeah, some people think it's going to skew, wise. it's going to skew to towards the left. But I'm not a hundred percent sure. Like if I'm a conservative, by the way, I I don't. I don't, um, you ask me about how I vote. I don't even tell my kids how I vote because I really do take my job seriously. Uh, and I will, t- and I will tell you this, honestly, uh, I've been across the spectrum. One of the reasons, you know, I've been asked to get involved in politics a million times. I've been, um, nonpartisan. I really take that seriously. I know people say, oh, you're left or you're right. I've been accused of everything. I- I'm doing my best to try to challenge people on, on all sides. I- I'm not fundamentally a very partisan person. I'm a more a common sense person, to be candid. Um, but I will just say this on, on like, if from a conservative point of view, if you do believe in, in freedom and personal responsibility, I'm just not sure. For example, people say, like, raise it to 21. Like, we're sending 18-year-olds off to fight for us, and they can't I, even drink I a beer. They can't even drink a beer in Ontario, and yet they can go to Afghanistan and fight. I just think this kind of stuff is paternalistic and nuts. I think 16-year-olds out there now are working their asses off, a lot of them. Uh, they're, they're, they're in debt. The school systems are, are having a tough time. I actually don't think it's, you know, elections come by every couple of years. I actually think it would increase engagement. I don't think it would fundamentally alter a lot. And I think it may make all look at political parties got to fish where the fishes are. And if there's votes to be had, they'll design policies for those people. Isn't that, yeah, yeah, isn't that, that right? Would be a bad thing. That would be a bad thing to design policies for people who don't know us. And in the aggregate, obviously, there's always exceptions, but in the aggregate, a, don't have a stake in the thing because they don't pay in general. I'm, com- I'm comparing it to other okay, Democrats. Okay, yeah, fair, fair, fair and enough. Your 16-year-old's not paying your tax. Yeah, and, and B, they are don't know what the bleep they're talking about. Like, I do not want to take any more lectures from the Greta Thunbergs of the world, as, as compelling as she may be to other morons, because they're morons. They don't know what they're talking about. I did not know what I was talking about, and I was a political junkie at that age. I still did not want to know what I was When I look back at some of the positions that I supported at that time, okay, I'm like, I, I shake my head, I'm like, I, I would I, let me just say let me let me just say this. Um, if age was an inoculation against 
stupidity, we'd have a much smarter political class, but it doesn't seem to be. I wish it was, but I haven't seen any great evidence of that. And I've learned a lot from the young folk. But listen, I get your point. It's a good one, man. And I appreciate it, John. Um, do I have time for one more? Um, let's get let's get uh, Mike. You've got teens. Go ahead, Mike. Hi, how are you? I'm great. What's up? Well, I, I agree with the last guy. I think at 16 years old, and I have four boys, and I've gone through all the, all their ages. One of them's just getting up to 16 now, and they're all bright. But you know what? They're not prepared to make decisions based on 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 facts that are out there now. I think you need to let them develop a little bit more. There's plenty of time for them to vote, and there's plenty of time for right. these parties to try to, as you say, kind of tailor stuff to them. But at 16, it's too early. Let me ask you something. The age of criminal responsibility in Canada, 12 and under. You're mature enough to be held criminally responsible at 12, but you can't vote at 16? Again, something that, that to me is odd. Why? Why? If they're so, okay, well, if they're so immature, why do we hold them c- criminally responsible? Well, because, I mean, what they're doing is they're committing a criminal act, so they're doing something that's, you know, that they know every, every kid is taught right from wrong when they're, when they're from right. a very young age, right? But to understand complex issues, that's, you're, you're asking... That's yeah, listen, stress. it's you're a fair point. Another... You know, you know I, I'm, just, I'm not rushing it, but, you know, I hit these breaks, so I hate cutting you off, Mike. I got two kids, too. You know what? Listen, this is a, this is a really good debate. Um, are they at 18? Do, do they magically become more mature? I don't know. Um, it's a great debate. I appreciate it. Uh, send me more texts. I'm listening to this. Um, speaking of that, I, I've got the. Uh, we've asked all the provincial leaders to come on. I got Stephen Del Duke on the other side of a break. Uh, hang in there, folks. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. All right, everybody. Uh, The Ontario election has kicked off, so we're going to drill down on that today. As I said, the new Nanos poll said health care is the most important issue. Leaders have uh, till June 2nd to sell their vision. We've invited all the party leaders on the program. Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, but we begin with Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. Um, They were decimated, the Liberals, in the last election. They, They come into this election with seven seats. How do they regain support well the first question i asked Stephen del duca was all right we've seen the polls for you what is the main challenge and what is the main framing of this election well first of all as you mentioned uh, evan it uh, that the 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 next election is effectively underway uh, the future of this province of course is at stake and there's a clear choice in this election campaign between the ford conservatives who want to continue to drag this province backwards with policies that will largely make only the richest all, a lot more rich, uh, and Ontario Liberals who are determined to make this province a place to grow, a place to grow healthy, a place to grow old, a place to grow sustainably, with a positive plan for our, for our, for our province's future, and that's what we are determined to deliver. Well, it looks like he's buddying up with Justin Trudeau. Yesterday, they each put in half a billion dollars in Windsor and Brampton, the auto plants. Um, Justin Trudeau standing shoulder to shoulder with Doug Ford on the eve of an election looked like a political gift, and it looks like they're both investing uh, and doing industrial support. Did that hurt your pitch that that he's regressive? It looks like he's in line with the Liberal government in Ottawa. 
Well, first of all, I think Justin Trudeau was governing yesterday, but everyone in this province knows that Doug Ford has been campaigning for months rather than doing the responsible thing to lead and govern this province. Look, I, I welcome investment into Ontario. I want good jobs in Windsor, Essex and elsewhere. I, I'm an electric vehicle owner, so of course I love that technology. But we know that Doug Ford is someone who doesn't support electric vehicles. We know he got rid of the incentive program. Uh, and we know, again, that he is going to drag Ontario backwards. That's why Ontario Liberals are focused on making this province a place to grow. And we have the ideas and the new Liberal team that will be able to deliver on that. You know, he's going to say, well, well, we've invested billions and billions of dollars in the battery plant and the auto industry. That's to grow. Uh, you recently proposed buck a ride on public transit uh, until 2024. That will cost over yeah. $700 million in year one and $1.1 the year after that. Right. Where does that money come from? So when we release our platform over the next several days, it will be fully costed. And the good news is that it's a plan that's balanced, it's responsible, and it will be delivered upon by a new Ontario Liberal government. Last Thursday, we saw Doug Ford present a budget that contained no plan. And we saw a platform days ago from the NDP, a platform that had no numbers. So you got a budget without a plan, a platform without numbers. Ontario Liberals instead have positive ideas. The ideas do have numbers to back them up. You'll see that when we, re we release the platform. But I will also say that over the last number of months, I've released more new ideas with more numbers attached to them than either of the other two parties combined. Well, well, so our plan is about the future, it's about moving this province forward, and we'll get that job done in the right way. But let me just tell you, I spoke with the, the mayor of Windsor, Ontario yesterday, Drew Dilkins, during that announcement, right. and I asked him about the buck, uh, right. a buck a ride. He panned it. He, he called it a political stunt, saying people need better right. services, not cheaper rides. Let me just show you what he said on this program last night. I hear from very, very few people about the cost of transit, recognizing that a monthly pass for the average user is really, you know, we're talking about filling up a tank of gas, about $90 in the city of Windsor. And so this may play well in the GTHA, uh, but in a city like mine, what riders want is actually better service. They want to be able to connect the transit services uh, in adjoining and adjacent municipalities and further into Essex County. And so I think it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a political stunt and, and transit is already so highly subsidized from the municipal tax base uh, that to think of you know going to a buck a ride how much do we have to spend and to move the needle probably almost nowhere at all so 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 what's your response to that we don't need people will pay for rides he says uh public transit but what they want is better service <laughs> yeah so i believe that we need both in ontario uh former minister of transportation for three and a half years i know we have to invest in expanding transit but we're in the midst of an affordability crisis we've seen ridership on municipal and provincial transit, including in Windsor, dropped during the pandemic. I want more people everywhere in Ontario taking public transit, and I want to make sure that we do have more service. By the way, that's why, in addition to buck a ride province-wide, we've also said we will give municipalities like Windsor an additional $375 million to support transit operations. It shouldn't be either or. Right. It's got to be both when it comes to public transit. Again, this is a clear choice between us and the Ford Conservatives who want to take Ontario backwards. I just, I just wonder when you say that, uh, like Doug Ford, he's got this child care deal, he agreed with the federal government. I've talked about the billion dollar investment for electric vehicles and battery production in places like Windsor and Brampton. Right. His budget doesn't look like he's got a plan to balance it. What distinguishes your party from the PC party at this point? Will you have balanced budgets? What is the distinguishing feature here? So again, you, you talked about his budget from last Thursday. I couldn't make out a coherent plan 
for Ontario's future coming out of that budget, which, by the way, the lack of a coherent plan is fairly fairly typical of Doug Ford. Throughout the last four years, we've watched him and his team flip, then flop, then flail. Uh, this kind of chaos and the kind of cuts they've delivered to Ontario families, they're not good enough for this province. So as I have been saying over the last number of days, Ontario Liberals will make this province a place to grow again. We're going to make sure you can grow old because we're going to ban for-profit long-term care and put home care first. We're going to make sure you can grow sustainably by planting 800 million trees and delivering $1 transit fares. We're going to make sure you can grow your family by properly funding and supporting publicly funded education. That's a stark difference between what we will do for the future and how Doug Ford wants well, Ontario to go backwards. Well, the key is let's see the numbers as the uh, Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson said. Uh, those are promises. We want to make sure that there's actual money to back it and we'll see when the numbers come out as this campaign kicks off. Ontario Liberal Leader Stephen Del Duca, thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Evan. Take care. Okay. This is going to be an interesting election. Look, Doug Ford... 2022 is not Doug Ford 2018. He has moved into the political center and across the political center. I spoke to, I can't say who, a high-level federal conservative who literally said to me, welcome to the Communist Republic of Ontario under Doug Ford, like industrial policies, not balanced budgets. They, you know, some conservatives who are sort of more on the right side of that spectrum, believe that the progressive conservatives in Ontario have moved too far to the left. And they're literally standing side by side with Justin Trudeau as best buddies. You, you remove the fight over the carbon tax, over the price on carbon, between Ford and Trudeau. They've been buddies on it. Child care deal, check. Industrial policies, Investment in car company, check. Like they get along. And 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 the truth is, for there are some reasons. You know, the riding federally that overlaps Doug Ford's riding provincially is is Christy Duncan. She's a uh she's a liberal. So you got people in like the heart of Ford Nation who vote liberal federally and Doug Ford provincially. And Ford's looking at that and saying, yeah, that's where the sweet spot is. So we'll find out if he can hold on to the center there. Uh, But we'll bring this to the war room next. And then we'll get to flying cars. And you can yell more. We got lots on the show. Stick around. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome to uh, the War Room, um, our favorite part of the week, and there's lots to discuss. Let's give the introduction because without the introduction, these guys just will not work. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. 
The War Room. You know, last night the Blue Jays lost their first series to the Yankees, and Judge, the great Yankee hitter, hits a home run ball. It is retrieved by a Blue Jays fan, but he notices that there's a little kid wearing a Judge shirt, a Yankees fan, and he hands the ball over. And I just thought it was so beautiful. And that's what I do every week to these three. I just like, oh. It's like I have the ball, and I just hand it over to the beautiful, innocent oh Tim Powers, God. chairman of Sumo Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, and now great column today. We'll talk about it on CTV. And he's back, Zane Velge, political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather formerly worked for the Calgary mayor and the uh, Alberta premier. Uh, here's, the, here's the political metaphoric baseball to you, and, and you can take it and run with it and, and, and go, go ahead. Um, welcome aboard, folks. Yeah, I'm hey, giving Evan. you a big bear hug like that kid did in <laughs> yeah. that Canadian heritage moment. That was, that was kind of great. That was special. I loved it. I, I, I'm not going to be cynical about it at all. That was actually excellent. Hey, what what I good. like about it is there's an adult's like, oh, you can have a free hardball. The guy's like a hero. It's like, dude, he's a man. He doesn't need a baseball, but I thought he did the right thing. Uh, Tom, let's start with you. Ontario election. Um, yeah. Break it down. Break it down. Like the, the the Nanos poll that was released like an hour ago kind of stunned me because Nanos is saying healthcare is by far the big issue, more than affordability. I was surprised. Yeah, and there are going to be issues playing into this campaign that are coming from completely other places, whether it's the abortion issue. And coming up from the United States, which will get asked. I mean, Doug Ford has been very careful. He, he tiptoes around the issue, if you can imagine Doug tiptoeing. And he says, well, he'll, he'll back certain of his MPPs if they're working with the social conservative side and holding events with the, you know, the, the so-called uh, pro-life side. But at the same time, he himself doesn't want to get caught up too much in it. But it's going to be there for him. And if by chance we get the Supreme Court decision in the States, it'll come fast forward. He's facing two opponents who are dividing the vote almost perfectly for him so far. And if that stays the case, he'll be in the same position as Francois Legault in Quebec. The divided opposition simply means Legault is going to walk towards his majority. And Ford could very well pull the same thing off. Now, the Liberals are going to be telling a different st story. They're already claiming that they're well ahead of the NDP. And the NDP made an odd decision yesterday to start the, oh, well, don't split the vote, vote for us argument. You would have thought that they would have waited for the, for the campaign to mature a little bit. So it's off to an interesting start. I do think that Ford's got this thing if he plays his cards right. And it's turned out that he's a much more deft player than anybody gave him credit for in the past. Yeah, well, Tim, not maybe not just a deaf player, but yeah, you know, it's like costume change. The, the Doug Ford of 2018 is gone. He's a new guy. He's a different guy. Well, change the word deaf for deaf. He was a bit tone deaf when he started and right. very off base. He apparently now has a hearing aid uh, and is picking up what he needs to pick up to be successful. But uh, but on the health care, I'm, I'm actually not surprised by that, Evan, because I think, I don't know what Nick asked in his question, but I think that is a synonym for pandemic recovery uh, and the way the system worked or didn't work for you or worked or didn't work for your family. Um, so I'm not surprised that that is there and dominating because we've seen on our side with Abacus Healthcare, as, as Zane and Tom and you know, always is a top-level issue. It's just how it's 
considered by voters. And Ford, for the most part, has not, you know, has an okay record on it. Del Duca has no real runway to go after him on it because, again, they were in government for 15 years and that's going to get thrown back in their face every time he offers a criticism. Uh, Horvath may have a bit more space there, but again, as it comes to Andrea Horvath, fairly or unfairly, because she's so familiar with Ontario voters yeah. having run yeah. since Dalton McGuinty, I think the perception of her is built in. So she may have a good issue, but people have decided where they want to go with Andrea Horvath. I think last time was their best chance. So Ford has some pretty good circumstances for that issue working for him. Yeah, um, 27% on health care, Zane. Cost of living and inflation, 12%. Housing, 11%. Economy mm-hmm. and jobs, 10%. Environment, 8%. Education, 5 Debt and deficit, 5 Like, um, By the way, freedom, like almost nothing. Uh, what, what do you make of this? Well, let me take Tim's deaf and, and now turn it into debt. Uh, because t- uh, as to what you alluded, Evan, on that poll, what shocked me, and it's been consistent with other polls beyond the Nanos poll, is how low debt and deficit are, which I think gives you the justification or at least the understanding now as a voter in terms of why the PC party is spending so much in that budget that they're running on, why everyone is pandering to progressives. The next you know, roughly 30 days, it's for you progressives in Ontario, you know, a dollar, a transit ride, electric vehicles, a progressive utopia for you, because that's where every party knows the votes are. And the appetite to solve debt and deficit uh, issues uh, is not there right now. In fact, the appetite to solve affordability issues by spending more certainly seems to be there. I'll also highlight that on that issue tracking, when you combine housing, cost of living and jobs and economy, it's very formidable as a competitor, if not a greater sort of cluster than than healthcare. And I think for progressives, especially the NDP and the liberals, to not take too much stock that healthcare is the number one issue and that they can go back to the COVID well, because there's probably a ton of um, you know, value. They they feel like they can go in politically hammering forward on COVID. Don't don't conflate healthcare for COVID, and don't lose your sight on cost of living and economy issues. Even though, uh, as independent line items on this poll, they may not be as high as healthcare. Yeah, COVID, by the way, was uh, tracked at four point one percent when you ask about mandates and managing mm-hmm. COVID nineteen. By the way, Mulcair starts with deft. Tim decides to roll it into deaf. And then jumping on the train, Zane goes with dead. My God, what do you got, Evan? You got, what do you got? You got? Well, I, I said that uh, this adds to the depth. And this oh, is what, oh, 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 and that's good. worth more oh. than a buck on anything, Evan. Let me go. What about that, uh, Tom? Is that a gimmick? Like, by the way, transit w- wasn't as high as I thought it would be. But what about these things? Like a buck a ride for two years is going to cost over a billion in the second year. The Liberals have pitched that. I it, it didn't really track. No, a buck of beer worked last time for Ford and it worked well. I mean, you know, it was a way of saying, you know, he understood what the priorities were, were for the average folks. And I do think that you have to look at a couple of things on that list because, of course, affordability and housing are split apart. But if you put them together, they become pretty well top of mind as well for a lot of voters in Ontario. Young people understand that they're not going to have the same break as their parents and their grandparents. They were they had no trouble buying a house. The young generation can't do it. They're listening to Poiliev, even if they're very progressive on social issues and environmental issues. They're listening to Poiliev because he's the only one talking to them about their economic issue. And I was talking before about how outside influences, I gave the example of the abortion issue coming up from the states. Well, I'll tell you, 
the conservative campaign is going to play into this thing as well, because mm. Poiliev is really igniting a fire, especially amongst younger voters. If you look at Andrea's vote, she's got 18 to 34 year olds up the wazoo. Apparently they're all with her, but that's what Singh had last time around. But the ones that like the NDP, unfortunately, don't, don't turn out to vote. Are the one the younger ones who are looking at these economic issues, these affordability issues, the housing issue, are they more likely to come out? Is it motivating them to actually come out and vote? And I think it is because it's something that's personal to them. They do care about big honking social issues. But at the end of the day, you've got to talk to people about what's in it for them. And I think that that cross pollination from the federal conservative leadership campaign to the provincial campaign might actually wind up being a bit of a benefit for Ford. And I, I liked what Tim was saying before about um, about Horvath, because she really is. I mean, Andrea's just a wonderful person, a great politician, but she's been at this for a yeah. whole long time. So it's very hard for her to say, you know, this is, you know, yeah. the, the, put the big red new stamp on it or orange in their case. Good luck with that. It, it doesn't Although work. Sometimes it worked. I mean, Jack Layton ran before, you know, before he really caught fire, he he, he yep. ran and ran. All right, let me take a break. I want to talk, pick up on what Tom's saying with Zane and Tim, and as the war room comes back, and the the abortion debate, the conservative leadership debate. How does it all play in? Helping you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. We are deep inside the political war room with Zane Velji, Tim Powers, and a, I don't even know, he's young, he's an up-and-comer. He's, he's going to make it. Tom Mulcare. I think you got a political future, Mulcare. I don't know. I just Thank I, you. you. I'll you should, give it a You try. should seriously I'll think about it. I think what I would do for you is I would start provincially before you think federally, then go <laughs> okay. federal. Just think about it. Uh, yeah, that would give me a Quebec bias, though. Everybody yeah, would see through that. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Uh, Zane, Tom, Tim, this is great. Uh, we just never get to meet over over uh, any kind of lunch or anything. We just drink Tim's soda. Tim, um, <laughs> let, let's talk about... There is a, a debate coming up at um, what used to be called the Manning Center, uh, which is a gathering of conservatives. Now it's called, I think, Canada Strong and Strong Free. Strong and Free, yeah. Strong yeah. and Free, yeah. Right a little on the nose with that one, but okay. Strong and Free. Uh, and it's the debates. What what are we expecting to, to, to see as the dynamic plays out, as the as the first clash, as we're down to basically the final six outside of the controversies? Well, it, May is arguably the most important month in this race, right? Because this is the first of three debates. This isn't an official debate. The next two are official debates, but it may as well be because, as I understand, there's a number of uh, people who will be there will be broadcast live. So if you're Pierre Polyev, um, you want to hold and gain ground. If you're Jean Charest, you want to gain a lot of ground and, and demonstrate you have the mastery of, uh, of, of the room and the knowledge base to sway some people over. If you're Patrick Brown, well, you're coming out of witness protection because hardly anybody has seen you. (laughs) And there's some suggestion he may not be at this debate uh, tomorrow, I have heard. Uh, I don't know if that's confirmed. If you're Leslie Lewis, 
you want to continue to demonstrate why everybody's paying attention to you. If you saw the recent fundraising numbers, um, she uh, she's doing very well. She's the third highest uh, was the third highest fundraiser in the last quarter. Brown was fourth behind her. Uh, the other two, Scott Aitchinson and Roman Baber, you want to, this is your moment. You want to use that stage to maybe become a player in this race. So there's a lot at stake for Polyev. Uh, Sheree probably has the most at stake because he needs to gain the most from these debates. Oh, yeah. And and Brown, last thing I'd say about Brown, um, we all know his organizational skills and abilities, uh, but there may be some who are saying, yeah, this guy sounds interesting. They want to hear what he has to say. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. And if Patrick yeah, Brown uh, is back uh, at the debate tomorrow. Uh, Patrick Brown's running like the invisible man. Like, may, may, I know he's fundraising like crazy in the back. It's just such a – I've never seen anyone run this subterranean campaign, especially when Pierre polyever has got such a massive – ground game. Sheree's got to figure out a way to gain some kind of to drive the agenda. And Leslie Lewis, Zane, is she emboldened by the abortion debate that has ignited in the U.S.? Does this embolden social conservatives? And she says, hey, it's a long game, but we win in the end. Oh, absolutely it does. And you see her fundraising numbers being much more competitive than folks may have thought. You know, if you saw that the Brown momentum was catching up, at least on an organizational level, he's nowhere near her on the dollar side of things. Yeah, so if, if you're Lewis, you're emboldened because, yes, there's a small sliver of Canadians that probably are on side with you in a macro perspective on this issue. But most of them reside within your party or are attracted to what you have to say as uh, the right wing node of your party. So she's probably going to lean into this heavier. And I suspect then it's going to be very interesting to see how the Lewis Polyever relationship evolves, because Polyever probably needs her her votes mm -hmm. at some point, but he doesn't want to lean into this issue too much. He's had a very Harper-esque line around, we're not going to open this conversation uh, any further. So the dynamics between the two of them, how hard right does she go? How much of a moment does she use this, especially if she wants to be kingmaker, so to speak, um, versus what she does to, to bolster her fundraising numbers and just go pure ideology on this file is going to be very interesting to see, especially with their relationship in this race. Okay, so uh, you have done a little Polly Everett there, Tom Mulcair. What are you coming up with in your new article? <laughs> well, one of the things that I find fascinating about Poiliev is he's not afraid to say stuff that just doesn't make any sense. His bit, his bit about the Bitcoin out, out of nowhere. But he also takes a stab at Tiff Macklin, the governor of the Bank of Canada, tying Trudeau to that nomination and tying Macklin to what Poiliev loves to call just inflation. So this is an attempt by him to get his issues out there. He draws people in, even they, even though they criticize him. He's been playing that game since day one. He says, I'm running for prime minister. Well, everybody tut-tutted and said, so, well, of course, this is Canada. You don't run for prime minister. The minute people said that, they put his name and the word words prime minister beside him. So he's been way ahead of everybody else in terms of communications. He is Trump-esque in the sense that there's very little substance for him to go back on. It'll be interesting to see what Charest can do on that level because he'd love to be able to drill down on some of the substantive issues. But, hey, guys, I have a feeling that this hall is going to be fairly packed with people who are much more prone to supporting Poiliev or Leslie Lewis. And if that's the case, no matter what gets said in the debate, if the reaction is very strong and positive, to those two, that's what people will take away. And people will be saying after this debate, oh, Charest didn't do well. People weren't very much on his side. Poiliev, 
of course, is having fun. He doesn't really believe that Bitcoin can replace the Canadian dollar, but he's got people talking about him. The most recent polling that I found fascinating is that he's starting to talk to young people and they're starting to react to him. And he's got something going there that nobody saw in the cards. Now, is this going to hold for a while? I think it might because Jean Charest experienced reasonable. Poiliev's going to go after him. Poiliev's going to go after him on his very sketchy ethical record when he was Premier of Quebec. He's going to go after him on his what I love calling his Huawei Whopper, where he said, oh, yes, you know, we, we were the lawyers for Huawei, but I was sort of maybe actually working to try to get the two Michaels out. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, that type of stuff is just easy target for uh, for his opponent. So it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Shahe, by the way, a very disciplined debater. He'll come very well prepared. But so far, the white phosphorus that Pierre Poivier has been firing at everything to light it up and then just move on to the next crazy idea, mm. it's working for him. So we'll see. I, um, I think it might continue to work for him. Yeah, anyone else want to? So, someone just did one of those, mm, I want to say something, <laughs> well, which is like, yeah. mm, I, I'm going to take a bite of this. Who, who, is I, 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 I want to get in, but I know it's Tim's turn. That was what that meant. Just go ahead. Uh, just, just go <laughs> ahead. Go ahead, Zane. It's okay. Go, go ahead. ahead. I'll just I'll say this very quickly, which is Charest comes in as a disciplined debater, and I don't know if that's to his advantage. He's yeah. in a very different fight now. And the thing is, with the Polyevra uh, campaign thus far, it's been an emotional truth, not a logical truth or a rational truth that they've been selling. It's really a feeling that they're selling to people with freedom as it's casing. And the fact is, if you're Charest, you can play the Jean Charest game, which is statesmanlike, good debater. But are you going to be trying to go for a line that's rational and logical or one that's emotional? Because if it is not emotional... Uh, you're not going to penetrate the way you need to in this debate to have a real fighting chance to make up some lost ground. Yeah, I, I, I will say I spoke to Shire recently. That guy can brawl and yeah, uh, he can statesman and he can brawl. I'm with Zane and T he's got a brawl, but I actually think he's a brawler when he needs to. And and I think his back's against the wall. I think he's got a, he's got three weeks to you know, two weeks to, to get in the game or he's yesterday's guy. Yeah, and yeah. He, he's had a couple of better weeks, I think, in terms of getting notoriety. But, yeah, that's all true. The thing, though, he has to do, and this is very specific to that audience, he has to stop criticizing conservatives for being conservatives and positioning himself as the other JC, the Jesus Christos of the crowd, because uh, that has not <laughs> gone over well. I think he can pull this out potentially, but he's got to move away from saying, conservatives, you suck, and I'm here to save you. He stopped doing that and show them what a capable leader he can be. So watch for that. I'll be interesting to see how uh. he message that, because if he leads with, you guys are a frigging mess, you're, uh, you're right. a white hot phosphorus, you steal Tom's phrase, um, and I, I can fix it all, he's done. By the way, uh, Zane also sighed because he wanted that J.C. Jesus Christos oh, so bad. I'm going to steal it without so attribution. Bad. Don't even worry. Don't even worry. It's God, it's a, you could see Zane's like, got it. It was like, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe someone just dropped a 50. It's mine. Um, okay, uh, I want special shout out to Tim Powers because he uh, he originally coached my son uh, in rugby and a bunch of his friends who, and then the rugby season started and he loves it. Got his first bloody nose, so uh, that's wait uh, till on the broken one, Evan. The yeah, wait till the broken one. one. That's nuts. Uh, Tom Mulcair, <laughs> Tim Powers, Zane. No, it's great. It's great to see uh, when Tim says your son should do the thing that leads him to a concussion. And then you say, okay, it's a great idea. I loved rugby, too. Uh, all right, guys, thank you so much. By the Take way, uh, the first airport for flying cars? Yeah, we're going to talk to the CEO next. Stay with us.
From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. For so many people, they're just trying to figure out if they can get an electric car. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Whether you're ready to make the big jump and what the subsidy should be and, and what the pluses and minuses. But there's even another jump. Flying taxis and drones. That's right. You see drones all over the place. Amazon is starting to deliver stuff with drones. But what about a flying taxi? Like, get out of traffic. Well, in the UK, the world's first airport for flying taxis and drones has opened. And the founder and executive chair of Urban Airport, Ricky Sandu, joins us now. Hello, sir. Hi there. Good morning. It's hard enough to get an Uber or a cab where we are right now. What is the urban airport? Like, what? I didn't even know there were flying taxis. Well, yeah. So flying taxis are something which is going to become a very uh, normal part of our daily lives. Um, In the UK, um, there are companies who are aiming for certification of their air taxis uh, as soon as 2024, 2025. Um, And so we're busy kind of laying the uh, groundwork, if you like, um, to make sure that when they are certified, they have somewhere to land and take off from. So so my company, Urban Airport Limited, um, based in the UK, we're working very hard um, to make sure that when they are certified, they do have a safe place to take off and land from. And we're really proud to have uh, opened the world's first fully operational uh, urban airport uh, in, in the UK um, about a week and a half ago. But what happens now? I mean, like I have no, we'll talk about flying cars and flying taxis. Because are, are you just talking about, is a flying taxi just at this moment a helicopter or is it, uh, or is it actually a car that is a plane? Well, right. So good question. So, so a flying taxi, um, so, and you know, they're kind of called, their, their official name is an eVTOL, an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And the, the air taxi that we have in our hangar uh, in Air One in the UK is a supernal air taxi. And supernal is a part of the Hyundai Motor Group company. And their air taxi um, is, I guess, you know, I guess you could call it a combination of an electric helicopter and a small electric uh, fixed wing aircraft. And, and that's kind of the unique thing. So these air taxis are mostly designed to be electric. They have distributed electric motors and they have several uh, horizontal and vertically um, rotatable rotors. Um, but they're also um, more and more of them. And the one that we have in our hangar, they have, uh, they have a fixed wing also. So it's a yeah. combination of a electric aircraft and a helicopter. I'm looking at this Supernal, which is the Eve Toll Supernal made by Hyundai, as you say. Like, it looks like a plane. It look, first of all, it looks expensive. Where can something like this land? Like, you know, when I take a cab, you know, price is an option. Like, how far does this go? Like, why would I use this? Because it looks pretty expensive. Right. So to, to make them and to certify them is really expensive. Yeah. Um, but the whole but the whole goal for the industry and the whole goal for Supernal and others as well is to make it affordable. Um, and, you know, and, and where we come in, um, we believe is a is a huge part of actually making it affordable because, you know, where we are in Coventry in the UK, where Air One is located, the world's first fully operational vertical is 
Um, it is right in the middle of downtown Coventry city centre, where half a million people work and live. We're 60 seconds from the main railway station and we're 60 seconds from, you know, from downtown. And so we have managed to, uh, with our technology, create a very ultra compact um, airport. And that means, you know, it's really small. So it fits into these dense locations, which then means that the capital expenditure of building the infrastructure is lower. But where would I take it? Like, I get off the train. I'm like, okay, I'm coming to Coventry. I, I say, I'm going to jump on the Supernal, and, right. and I'm going to go. So, so how far would it go? What kind of pricing would it be? Just give me, like, a normal scenario where someone may be using this service. Okay, sure. So, so from Coventry, you, you, you've just hopped off a train. You're kind of connecting to the Supernal aircraft. It flies 200 miles per hour. Um, and it has a range of about 200 miles also. So from Coventry, which is in the center of the UK, you could fly to London in around 25 minutes. And so you're kind of saving 30 minutes on a journey that you would normally take on a train. And you're probably going to pay somewhere between, you know, 40 and 90 pounds, which I guess is somewhere between 80 and a hundred dollars or so um, for a hundred mile ground based journey. Wow that you can do in 25 minutes. So, so the value is, you know, it, it'll be a little bit more than a normal train ride, um, but you're saving so much time, which means you can be more productive and, and, you know, we're not sitting around in traffic. But once I get to London, though, don't I have to then get in another cab to get where I actually want to go, right? Okay, so that's where we come in, right? So if we can have, using our technology, have very ultra-compact verticals, that means we can be in really dense locations. So you're not landing kind of out of town where you would normally have to land in a helicopter or and you know or in any kind of aeroplane. So with our infrastructure, if you can land right downtown, when you land, you hop off, uh, grab a coffee, and then you're walking into work, you're walking home, and maybe you're also having to connect on a bike or you know or, or, or a short distance. But, right, right, right. So the key thing for us is to make sure we get you right downtown into those locations where you would not ordinarily be able to land. And now, so you've got this thing. Now, that's early. There's a couple years away uh, of really getting some traction on this stuff and license. What about drones? Are you going mad with drones right now? Well, yeah, so, so the whole of last week, in, in fact, last Monday on the 25th of April, which was our launch day, um, we had something amazing happen. So we had a Malloy Aeronautics drone. It's a UK-based company. Um, they design and build and sell drones to the UK military and all around the world. They actually took off a drone that carries 70 kilograms. I can't convert that to pounds right now. but uh, 2.2 kilograms per pound. So, some, so, so you're, you're, you're getting like 160 pounds or something. 160 pounds payload, which is which is amazing, right? So that was flying in a ultra dense downtown location, which has never happened anywhere before in the world. So a, a super, um, you know, a drone about the size of your single bed, uh, taking off with that payload in in a downtown setting. So yes, yeah, so so cargo drones and cargo logistics is going to be um, a huge part of the next couple of years, and and already, you know, last month. Um, in Ireland, there were over 160,000 drone deliveries, and that was just last month. So it's, it's a really rapidly growing industry, and so we're here to support all kinds of drones and eVTOL. Right, that, that's um, the money, so and like, the, like when you, if you can carry, I think it's technically 154 pounds, um, but if you can carry 160 pounds with drones, drone delivery is money right now. Like I get that eventually flying cars and right. taxis is sexy, you're getting on radio shows. 
but that's a ways away. But boy, there's it's a real now business drone delivery. It's really happening, you know, and it's something that we, we all kind of think is going to be somewhere down the line. And we're all kind of thinking, you know, we, we have drones for recreational purposes, but actually drones can, you know, they're going to have a big impact on us. And, and you know, and, and some of the work that we did with the UK government starts to demonstrate that actually um, a payload on the drone that's comparable to a low carbon vehicle can save up to 50 percent in terms of carbon emissions. And so if we can figure out a way, which is what we're working on, to have drones fly safely and securely from point A to point B via an orchestrated air architecture. Um, it's going to have a real impact on our cities and the way that we live, actually. You know, so it, it's a really exciting so cool. uh, business use case. Um, well, you ju- it's, a, it, it, it's a way to make our cities cleaner. Yeah, and listen, any if you can get tell the drone to come over here if they can get me out of traffic. Uh, Ricky Sandu, founder and executive chair of Urban Airport, the world's first airport, not only for flying taxis, but for drones and drone delivery in the UK. Um, We'd love to pull back the the curtain and look into the future, Ricky. Good luck. Best of luck with that. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Speaking of cars, like I know the flying taxi thing is, you know, George Jetson stuff. But are you going to make the jump to an electric car? I'm really intrigued. Is your next car purchase electric? 1-855-633-1010. through the changes here's evan solomon so we just got off the phone with the ceo of the first airport for flying taxis and drones that's kind of cool actually there's no question that you'll be getting deliveries by drones you know here comes your amazon here it come like that's the future that's coming it's a no-brainer but people are just trying to make the shift now with the price of gas the price of gas is just bonkers the price of gas is crazy. I remember I used to have a diesel, and the diesel was cheaper than gas. Now it's diesel. I'm glad I don't have it. Now I know it goes better on the highway. We have the hybrid. But, you know, now it's like, wait, we, we drive to Toronto from Ottawa all the time. We drive to Montreal so we're like highway drivers, and the electric car is a problem for that, especially in the winter. But, you know, my wife and I, by the way, I'm going to just tell you something about my, my incredible wife. Um, she has a, she's so organized. She's like a chief of staff at, 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 a, at a great nonprofit, Students on Ice. She's, she's, she's the most organized, disciplined, leadership, great person. But she's got some one weird blind spot, which is when she drives our car, she lets the tank go to empty and i hate it it's like a pet peeve like when you're on the highway you fill up at halfway in case there's any emergency but she doesn't it's a weird blind just this last weekend she drove to toronto almost ran out of gas drove back with my mom almost ran out of gas and she's embarrassed she knows it's a blind it's like okay how would she do with an electric car (laughs) like i don't understand why she has this blind spot because she has so few but like are you like me? Just fill the bloody car up. You know, you get to just under half or even a quarter. You stop, you pull over, you get a coffee, you take a bath, but fill up. Do not let, don't be on the highway below a quarter of a tank. 
Anyway, so we got to make the jump. And I just don't know if we're ready because is the infrastructure there? Like, I want to do it. They're expensive. They're cheaper in Quebec where they have a way better buy, um, a rebate program. And if I was just, we are a one-car family. So if we were a two-car family and we had one car for the city, yeah, I think, it, and we could afford an EV, sure. But we're a one-car family and it's a highway stuff. I don't know. Can we do an EV? Uh, but Robert in Mississauga, go for it. Yeah, hi, Evan. I uh, love your show. Uh, Thanks, man. I'm gonna ask, I have to uh, ask two questions before I buy, buy an electric. I'm thinking about it. Number one, what's the real mileage in the wintertime? Because Canada is very cold. And number two, when is the government going to start charging me per kilometer now that I'm not paying 60, 70 cents a liter in taxes? Because that's going to be a rude awakening for the uh, electric car buyers, thinking they're going to get away tax-free, huh. which they're not. Yeah, that's interesting, Robert. Uh, two things. Uh, winter, yes. Um, on EV vehicles, the range goes down in the cold. Uh, for example, if you're buying the, high, the, the new Hyundai Ionic, great car, but there's a four-wheel drive and a two-wheel drive, the four-wheel drive gets something like um, 100 kilometers less in range, significantly less range. But I, I want to drive a four-wheel drive and, and because I live in a very snowy part. And in terms of exactly. whether the government will, dig, will ding you eventually on the electricity charges, yeah, yeah I, I think, Robert, you, you're, you've put something on the radar screen that I think we've got to watch. That is a great call. That, that may well happen if the big transformation happens. So thanks, Robert. Um, yeah, and Robert's got that. That's good. Uh, Jeff, what's up? Evan, you know, batteries are going to improve with time, so the, the, the range of these cars are going to increase. What I want is consistency from my government. I was going to put chargers in these buildings downtown before Doug Ford came to office and cancel that debate that Kathy Kathleen Wynn had instituted. He cost me $79,000 because wow. I was going to put the chargers in. We need chargers. And if people can get convenient charging stations, like where I live in Mississauga, in the bank parking lot, Tesla put in nine chargers. You can go to charge for free. You can park your car overnight and charge it in the, in the charger there at um, Winston Churchill and the 401. So if we can get chargers, um, charging stations set up, more people would buy these vehicles. And with time, the yeah. batteries are going to improve. So we don't have to worry about mileage any, anymore. Well, Jeff, first on the batteries, you're right. But I think Jeff's raised a great point. It's, it's not the chicken and egg. It's the, char it's the chargers and the EVs. Uh, you got to have the infrastructure and the chargers before people are going to buy the EVs. Tesla's got you by the batteries, as it were, because they have a proprietary system of chargers. So pay more to get a charger. Uh, a Tesla, you get proprietary charging. It's not like anyone can go there. Tesla owners get Tesla charge. Uh, so, Jeff, that is a phenomenal point. My point is, are we there yet on batteries for winter driving? Now, like, I know it's coming. I want to get one. But if I'm a single car, single fa car family... family. And I got two kids. I got a big dog. I drive in the winter. I'm a highway driver. Uh, is it there yet? Nick, what's up? Uh, how are you doing? Uh, to answer that question, there was a survey. Uh, people that drive every day, uh, they drive between 40, 20 to 40 kilometers. So that's the average person. Now, I have an electric car. I have it for nine years. Uh, I bought myself an electric car. I love it. I'm going to purchase another Mercedes uh Coming out this uh, this fall, uh, uh, which is the EQE, we'll be doing around 350 kilometer miles. Uh, it's one thing about electric cars. Uh, 
Yes, they do lose a little, around 40%, a minus 30 below zero. But, you know, in the winter, nobody travels that far. You know, nobody goes up the, in a country place, whatever. And the last thing I'm going to say is that uh, the maintenance on these cars are zero. No no mm. oil, no transmission oil, no spark plugs, no filters. In the long run, you're saving money. Yeah, listen, uh, you're, I appreciate that call. Uh, thank you for that. I'm going to tell you something. Everyone I know who's got an electric vehicle loves it. I'm all, you're pushing it against an open door. I want to get one. Uh, they're, they're expensive. I, I do have some range anxiety. Uh, I disagree. I do drive a lot in the winter. I think for rural uh, people who live in rural areas, it's a big, big deal. Uh, but look, this is coming. We're all going to have electric cars, GM, Ford, Stellantis. They're all switching. This is happening. My question is just how fast. And, you know, I got you know, to figure out my next car in the next year. Uh, Evan, not only is my next car going to be electric, I'm sure mine is too, by the way. Uh, so is my next lawnmower, snowblower, leaf blower, pressure washer, furnace, everything. Never buying another fossil fuel powered thing again. Furnace? Really? Electric furnace. Can you imagine the price on that? I think you're going to, I think you should, I don't know. Just maybe someone can flip me a note on an electric furnace. That seems bloody expensive. Um, a lot of people are here. Evan, I'd buy an electric car if they were available. Yes, the weight is insane. Evan, I just purchased a car. I wanted to convert to EV, but everything was either sold out or the waiting period was one to one and a half years. So I ended up buying a gas car. Once they solved the supply chain issues and better prices and even better infrastructure, I'm reconsidering, says Jimmy. Jimmy, uh, great point. Like, you got to put down payments on these cars. By the way, these cars are expensive. But I would I would think that for 80% of our, our urban people who are, if you're listening in a city, if you're in a rural area, I really believe this is going to be a different story. There's going to be a longer lag on this. But in the next, I think in the next three or four years, this will be the last uh, non-electric car you're going to buy or lease. Because you maybe you squeeze out one more fossil fuel car, but with gas prices what they are, like this is one of those incentives. It's like COVID. COVID was COVID made online shopping and it accelerated the move to online shopping. Uh, gas prices are going to accelerate the move to EVs. All right, great conversations. I got to go. Power play at five. <laughs> 